discuter de tout ça. I don't want to set the world on fire. We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. Good evening, good afternoon, or good morning, whenever it may be, wherever you may be, and however you may be hearing my voice. Whether it be via download through one of the many podcast platforms, or if you are listening to the premiere on the Alternate Current Radio's live stream, I appreciate you tuning in and joining me as we attempt to navigate the shark-infested waters of the agenda-centivized media and look past the propaganda. This is your daily dose of what's currently all the ruckus. What in God's name is going on in here? What was that ruckus? Uh, what ruckus? I was just in my office and I heard a ruckus. Could you describe the ruckus, sir? Watch your tongue, young man. Watch it. Howdy, folks. Tonight's guest, as it were, for open mic night on The Daily Ruckus will be New York Times best-selling author Daniel J. Levitin, a neuroscientist who used to produce records for top artists such as Santana and The Grateful Dead. Tonight's reading comes from his book titled Weaponized Lies, How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. You're listening to Alternate Current Radio. I'm Adam Clark, and this is The Daily Ruckus. Any fans of the TV show The Big Bang Theory out there? Well, maybe you remember Season 8, Episode 5, The Focus Attenuation. During the opening scene, sitting at a table in the Caltech cafeteria, just behind Sheldon's right shoulder, was a man by the name of Daniel Joseph Levitin, who made a cameo appearance at the invitation of the producers. Levitin, born December 27, 1957, is a dual citizen, American-Canadian, cognitive psychologist, neuroscientist, writer, musician, and record producer. He is James McGill Professor Emeritus of Psychology and Behavioral Neuroscience at McGill University in Montreal, Quebec, Canada, founding Dean of Arts and Humanities at the Minerva Schools at KGI, and a distinguished faculty fellow at the Haas School of Business, University of California at Berkeley. From 2000 to 2017, he was director of the Laboratory for Music Perception, Cognition, and Expertise at McGill. He is a former member of the Board of Governors of the Grammys, a consultant to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, an elected fellow of the American Association for the Advancement of Science, a fellow of the Association for Psychological Science, a fellow of the Psychonomic Society, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He has appeared frequently as a guest commentator on NPR and CBC. He has published scientific articles on absolute pitch, music cognition, neuroautonomy, and directional statistics. Levitin also worked as a music consultant, producer, and sound designer on albums by Blue Oyster Cult, Chris Isaac, and Joe Satriani, among others, produced punk bands, including MDC and The Afflicted, and served as a consultant on albums by artists including Steely Dan, Stevie Wonder, and Michael Brook, and as a recording engineer for Santana, Jonathan Richman, 
and The Grateful Dead, and he is the author of four New York Times best-selling books, including the one I am going to read from for you tonight. When the book was originally published as a hardcover in September 2016, it was titled A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age. But when it was released in paperback form, March 2017, the cover bore the title Weaponized Lies, How to Think Critically in the Post-Truth Era. The author says he wrote the book to arm everyone with the skills to think critically, although he also stresses that often all you need to think critically is to ask three questions. Why? Can we really know that? And how do they know that? And without further ado, the following are selected readings from part two of the book, specifically the chapter titled Overlooked, Undervalued Alternative Explanations. When evaluating a claim or argument, ask yourself if there is another reason other than the one offered that could account for the facts or observations that have been reported. There are always alternative explanations. Our job is to weigh them against the ones offered and determine whether the person drawing the conclusion has drawn the most obvious or likely one. For example, if you pass a friend in the hall and they don't return your hello, you might conclude that they're mad at you. But alternative explanations are that they didn't see you, were late for a meeting, were preoccupied, have taken a vow of silence for an hour, or were temporarily invaded by body snatchers, or maybe permanently invaded. Alternative explanations come up a great deal in pseudoscience and counter-knowledge, and they come up often in real science, too. Physics researchers at CERN reported that they had discovered neutrinos traveling faster than light that would have upended a century of Einsteinian theory. It turns out it was just a loose cable in the linear accelerator that caused a measurement error. This underscores the point that a methodological flaw in an extremely complicated experiment is almost always the more likely explanation than something that would cause us to completely rewrite our understanding of the nature of the universe. Similarly, if a web page cites experiments showing that a brand new, previously unheard of cocktail of vitamins will boost your IQ by 20 points, and the drug companies don't want you to know, you should wonder how likely it is that nobody else has heard of this, and if an alternative explanation for the claim is simply that someone is trying to make money. Mentalists, fortune tellers, and psychics make a lot of money performing seemingly impossible feats of mind reading. One explanation is that they have tapped into a secret hidden force that goes against everything we know about cause and effect and the nature of space-time. An alternative explanation is that they are magicians, using magic tricks, and simply lying about how they do what they do. Lending credence to the latter view is that professional magicians exist, including James Randi, who so far has been able to use clever illusions to duplicate every single feat performed by a mentalist, and often the magicians, in an effort to discredit the self-proclaimed psychics, will tell you how they did the tricks. In fairness, I suppose that it's possible that it is the magicians who are trying to deceive us. They are really psychics who are afraid to reveal their gifts to us, possibly for fear of exploitation, kidnapping, etc., and they are only pretending to use 
clever illusions. But again, look at the two possibilities. One causes us to throw out everything we know about nature and science, and the other doesn't. Any psychologist, law enforcement officer, business person, divorced spouse, spy, or lawyer can tell you that people lie. They do so for a variety of reasons, and with sometimes alarming frequency and alacrity. But if you're facing a claim that seems unlikely, the more likely alternative explanation is that the person telling it to you is lying in one way or another. People who try to predict the future without using psychic powers, military leaders, economists, business strategists, are often wildly off in their predictions because they fail to consider alternative explanations. This has led to a a business practice called scenario planning, considering all possible outcomes, even those that seem unlikely. This can be very difficult to do, and even experts fail. In 1968, Will and Ariel Durant wrote, quote, In the United States, the lower birth rate of the Anglo-Saxons has lessened their economic and political power, and the higher birth rate of Roman Catholic families suggests that by the year 2000, the Roman Catholic Church will be the dominant force in national as well as in municipal or state governments, end quote. What they failed to consider was that during those intervening 32 years, many Catholics would leave the church and many would use birth control in spite of the church's prohibitions. Alternative scenarios to their view in 1968 were difficult to imagine. Social and artistic predictions get upended too. Experts said around the time of the Beatles that, quote, guitar bands are on their way out, end quote. The reviews of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony on its debut included a number of negative pronouncements that no one would ever want to hear it again. Science also gets upended. Experts said that fast-moving trains would never work because passengers would die of asphyxiation. Experts thought that light moved through an invisible ether. Science and life are not static. All we can do is evaluate the weight of evidence and judge for ourselves, using the best tools we have at our disposal. One of those tools that is underused is employing creative thinking to imagine alternatives to the way we've been thinking all along. Alternative explanations are often critical to legal arguments in criminal trials. Proper scientific reasoning entails setting up two or more hypotheses and presenting the probabilities for both. This comes up all the time. In one case in the UK, the suspect, Dennis Adams, was accused based solely on DNA evidence. The victim failed to pick him out of a lineup and in court said that Adams did not look like her assailant. The victim added that Adams appeared two decades older than the assailant. In addition, Adams had an alibi for the night in question. The only evidence the prosecution presented at trial was the DNA match. Now, Adams had a brother whom the DNA would also have matched, but there was no additional evidence that the brother had committed the crime, and so investigators didn't consider the brother. But they also lacked additional evidence against Dennis. The only evidence they had was the DNA match. No one in the trial considered the alternative hypothesis that it might have been Dennis's brother. Dennis was convicted both in the original trial and on appeal.
built by the ancients to be seen from space? You may have heard the speculation that human life didn't really evolve on Earth, that a race of space aliens came down and seeded the first human life. This by itself is not implausible, it's just that there is no real evidence supporting it. That doesn't mean it's not true, and it doesn't mean we shouldn't look for evidence, but the fact that something could be true has limited utility, except perhaps for science fiction. A 2015 story in the New York Times described a mysterious formation on the ground in Kazakhstan that could be seen only from space. Quote, satellite pictures of a remote and treeless northern steppe reveal colossal earthworks, geometric figures of squares, crosses, lines, and rings the size of several football fields, recognizable only from the air, and the oldest estimated at 8,000 years old. The largest, near a Neolithic settlement, is a giant square of 101 raised mounds, its opposite corners connected by a diagonal cross, covering more terrain than the Great Pyramid. Pyramid of Cheops. Another is a kind of three-limbed swastika, its arms ending in zigzags bent counterclockwise." End quote. It's easy to get carried away and imagine that these great designs were a way for ancient humans to signal space aliens, perhaps following strict extraterrestrial instructions. Perhaps it was an ancient spaceship landing pad, or a coded message, something like, send more food. We humans are built that way. We like to imagine things that are out of the ordinary. We are are the storytelling species. Setting aside the rather obvious fact that any civilization capable of interstellar flight must have had a more efficient communication technology at their disposal than arranging large mounds of dirt on the ground, an alternative explanation exists. Fortunately, the New York Times, although not every other outlet that reported this story, provides it in a quote from Dimitri Day, the discoverer of the mysterious stones. Quote, I don't think they were meant to be seen from the air, Mr. Day, 44, said in an interview from his hometown, Costany, dismissing outlandish speculations involving aliens and Nazis. Long before Hitler, the swastika was an ancient and near-universal design element. He theorizes that the figures built along straight lines on elevations were horizontal observatories to track the movements of the rising sun, end quote. An ancient sundial explanation seems more likely than space aliens. It doesn't mean it's true, but part of information literacy and evaluating claims is uncovering plausible alternatives such as this. The Missing Control Group the so-called Mozart effect was discredited because the experiments showing that listening to Mozart for 20 minutes a day temporarily increased IQ lacked a control group. That is, one group of people was given Mozart to listen to, and one group of people was given nothing to do. Doing nothing is not an adequate control for doing something, and it turns out if you give people something to do, almost anything, the effect disappears. The Mozart effect wasn't driven by Mozart's music increasing IQ. It was driven by the boredom of doing nothing, temporarily decreasing effective IQ. If you bring 20 people with headaches into a laboratory and give them your new miracle headache drug and 10 of them get better, you haven't learned anything. Some headaches are going to get better on their own. How many? We don't know. You'd need to have a control group of people with similar ages and backgrounds and reporting similar pain. And because just the belief that you might get better can lead to health improvement, 
movements, you have to give the control group something that enables that belief as much as the medicine under study. Hence the well-known placebo, a pill that is made to look exactly like the miracle headache drug so that no one knows who is receiving what until after the experiment is over. The missing control group shows up in everyday conversation, where it's harder to spot than in scientific claims, simply because we're not looking for it there. You read and validate a new study showing that going to bed every night and waking up every morning at the same time increases productivity and creativity. An artist friend of yours, successful by any measure, counters that she's always just slept whenever she wanted, frequently pulling all-nighters and sometimes sleeping for 20 hours at a time, and she's done just fine. But there's a missing control group. How much more productive and creative might she have been with a regular sleep schedule? We don't know. Two twins were separated at birth and reared apart, one in Nazi Germany and the other in Trinidad and Venezuela. One was raised as a Roman Catholic who joined the Hitler Youth, the other as a Jew. They were reunited 21 years later and discovered a bizarre list of similar behaviors that many fascinated people could only attribute to genetics. Both twins scratched their heads with their ring finger. Both thought it was funny to sneak up on strangers and sneeze loudly. Both men wore short, neatly trimmed mustaches and rectangular wire-rimmed glasses rounded at the corner. Both wore blue shirts with epaulettes and military-style pockets. Both had the same gait when walking and the same way of sitting in chairs. Both loved butter and spicy food, flushed the toilet before and after using it, and read the endings of books first. Both wrapped tape around pens and pencils to get a better grip. Stories like this may cause you to wonder about how our behaviors are influenced by our genes, or if we're all just automatons and our actions are predetermined. How else to explain such coincidences? Well, there are two ways, and they both boil down to a missing control group. A social psychologist might say that the world tends to treat people who look alike in similar ways. The attractive are treated differently from the unattractive, the tall differently from the short. If there's something about your face that just looks honest and free of self-interest, people will treat you differently from how they would if your face suggests otherwise. The brothers' behaviors were shaped by the social world in which they live. We'd need a control group of people who are not related, but who still look astonishingly alike and were raised separately, in order to draw any firm conclusions about this quote-unquote natural experiment of the twins separated at birth. A statistician or behavioral geneticist would say that of the thousands upon thousands of things that we do, it is likely that any two strangers will share some striking similarities in dress, grooming, penchant for practical jokes, or odd proclivities if you just look long enough and hard enough. Without this control group bringing strangers together and taking an inventory of their habits, we don't know whether the fascinating story about the twins is driven by genetics or pure chance. It may be that genetics plays a role here, but probably not as large a role as we might think. 
cherry-picking. Our brains are built to make stories as they take in the vastness of the world, with billions of events happening every second. There are apt to be some coincidences that don't really mean anything. If a long-lost friend calls just as you're thinking of her, that doesn't mean either of you has psychic powers. If you win at roulette three times in a row, that doesn't mean you're on a streak and should bet your last dollar on the next spin. If your non-certified mechanic fixes your car this time, it doesn't mean he'll be able to do it next time. He may just have gotten lucky. Say you have a pet hypothesis, for example, that too much vitamin D causes malaise. You may well find evidence to support that view. But if you're looking only for supporting evidence, you're not doing proper research because you're ignoring the contradictory evidence. There might be a little of this or a lot, but you don't know because you haven't looked. Colloquially, scientists call this cherry-picking the data that suit your hypothesis. Proper research demands that you keep an open mind about any issue and try to valiantly consider the evidence for and against, and then form an evidence-based conclusion, not a gee-I-wish-this-were-so-based conclusion. A companion to the cherry-picking bias is selective windowing. This occurs when the information you have access to is unrepresentative of the whole. If you're looking at a city through the window of a train, you're only seeing a part of that city and not necessarily a representative part. You have visual access only to the part of the city with train tracks running through it and whatever biases may attach to that. Trains make noise. Wealthier people usually occupy houses away from the noise, so the people who are left living near the tracks tend to have lower income. If all you know of a city is who lives near the tracks, you are not seeing the entire city. We're trying to understand the nature of the world, or at least a new city that the train's passing through, and we want to consider alternative explanations for what we're seeing or being told. A good alternative explanation with broad applicability is that you're only seeing a part of the whole picture, and the part you're not seeing may be very different. Maybe your sister is proudly displaying her five-year-old daughter's painting. It may be magnificent. If you love the painting, frame it. But if you're trying to figure out whether to invest in the child's future as the world's next great painter, you'll want to ask some questions. Who cropped it? Who selected it? How big was the original? How many drawings did the little Picasso make before this one? What came before and what came after? Through selective windowing, you may be seeing part of a series of brilliant drawings, or a lovely little piece of a much larger and unimpressive work that was identified and cropped by the teacher. We see selective windowing in headlines, too. A headline might announce that, quote, three times more Americans support this new legislation than oppose it, end quote. Even if you satisfy yourself that the survey was conducted on a representative and sufficiently large sample of Americans, you can't conclude that the majority of Americans support the legislation. It could well be that 1% oppose it, 3% support it, and 94% remain undecided. Translate this same kind of monkey shines to an election headline stating that five times as many Republicans support candidate A than candidate B for the presidential primaries. That may be true, but the headline might leave out that candidate C is polling with 80% of the vote. Try tossing a coin ten times. You quote-unquote know that it should come up heads half the time, but it probably won't. Even if you toss it a thousand times, you probably won't get exactly 500 heads. Theoretical probabilities are achieved only with 
an infinite number of trials. The more coin tosses, the closer you'll get to 50-50 heads-tails. It's counterintuitive, but there's a probability very close to 100% that somewhere in that sequence you'll get five heads in a row. Why is this so counterintuitive? We didn't evolve brains with a sufficient understanding of what randomness looks like. It's not usually heads-tails, heads-tails, but there are going to be runs, also called streaks, even in a random sequence. This makes it easy to fool someone. Just make a cell phone video recording of yourself tossing a coin 1,000 times in a row. Before each toss, say, this is going to be the first of five heads in a row. Then, if you get a head, before the next toss, say, this is going to be the second of five heads in a row. If the next one is a tail, start over. If it's not, before you make the next toss, say, this is going to be the third of five heads in a row. Then just edit your video so that it only includes those five in a row. No one will be any the wiser. If you want to really impress people, go for ten in a row. There's roughly a 38% chance of that happening in 1,000 tosses. Looking at this another way, if you ask a hundred people in a room to toss a coin five times, there is a 96% chance that one of them will get five heads in a row. The kinds of experiences that a 75-year-old socialite has with the New York City Police Department are likely to be very different from those of a 16-year-old boy of color. Their experiences are selectively windowed by what they see. The 16-year-old may report being stopped repeatedly without a cause, being racially profiled, and treated like a criminal. The 75-year-old may fail to understand how this could be. Quote, All my experiences with those officers have been so nice. End quote. Paul McCartney and Dick Clark bought up all the celluloid film of their television appearances in the 1960s, ostensibly so that they could control the way their histories are told. If you're a scholar doing research, or a documentarian looking for archival footage, you're limited to what they choose to release to you. When looking at data or evidence to support a claim, ask yourself if what you're being shown is likely to be representative of the whole picture. Selective small samples. Small samples are usually not representative. Suppose you're responsible for marketing a new hybrid car. You want to make claims about its fuel efficiency. You send a driver out in the vehicle and find that the car gets 80 miles to the gallon. That looks great. You're done. But maybe you just got lucky. Your competitor does a larger test, sending out five drivers in five vehicles, and gets a figure closer to 60 miles per gallon. Who's right? You both are. Suppose that your competitor reported the results like this. Test 1, 58 miles per gallon. Test 2, 38 miles per gallon. Test 3, 69 miles per gallon. Test 4, 54 miles per gallon. Test 5, 80 miles per gallon. Road conditions, ambient temperature, and driving styles create a great deal of variability. If you were lucky, and your competitor unlucky, your one driver might produce an extreme result that you then report with glee. And of course, if you want to cherry-pick, you just ignore tests 1 through 4. But if the researcher is pursuing the truth, a larger sample is necessary. An independent lab that tested 50 different excursions might find that the average is something completely different. In general, anomalies are more likely to show up in small samples. Larger samples more accurately reflect the state of the world. Statisticians call this the law of large numbers. If you look at births in a small rural 
rural hospital over a month and see that 70% of the babies born are boys compared to 51% in a large urban hospital, you might think there is something funny going on in the rural hospital. There might be, but that isn't enough evidence to be sure. The small sample is at work again. The large hospital might have reported 51 out of 100 births were boys, and the small might have reported 7 out of 10. As with the coin toss, the statistical average of 50-50 is most recognizable in large samples. How many is enough? This is a job for a professional statistician, but there are rough and ready rules you can use when trying to make sense of what you're reading. For population surveys, example voting preferences, toothpaste preferences, and such, sample size calculators can readily be found on the web. For determining the local incidence of something, rates, such as how many births are boys, or how many times a day the average person reports being hungry, you need to know something about the base rate, or incidence rate, of the thing you're looking for. If a researcher wanted to know how many cases of albinism are occurring in a particular community, and then examined the first 1,000 births and found none, it would be foolish to draw any conclusions. Albinism occurs in only 1 in 17,000 births. 1,000 births is too small a sample. Small, relative to the scarcity of the thing you're looking for. On the other hand, if the study was on the incidence of preterm births, 1,000 should be more than enough because they occur in 1 in 9 births. Statistical Literacy Consider a street game in which a hat or basket contains three cards, each with two sides. One card is red on both sides, one white on both sides, and one is red on one side and white on the other. The con man draws one card from the hat and shows you one side of it, and it is red. He bets you $5 that the other side is also red. He wants you to think that there is a 50-50 chance that this is so, so you're willing to bet against him that is, that the other side is just as likely to be white. You might reason something like this. He's showing me a red side, so he has pulled either the red-red card or the red-white card. That means that the other side is either red or white, with equal probability. I can afford to take this bet, because even if I don't win this time, I will win soon after. Setting aside the gambler's fallacy, many people have lost money by doubling down on roulette, only to find out that chance is not a self-correcting process. The con man is relying on you, counting on you, to make this erroneous assignment of probability, and usually talking fast in order to fractionate your attention. If he is showing you a red side, it could be any one of three sides that he's showing you. In two of those cases, the other side is red, and in only one case, the other side is white. So there is a two in three chance that if he showed you red, the other side will be red, not a one in two chance. This is because most of us fail to account for the fact that on the double red card, he could be showing you either side. If you have trouble with this, don't feel bad. Similar mistakes were made by mathematical philosopher Gottfried William Leibniz, and many more recent textbook authors. When evaluating claims based on probabilities, try to understand the underlying model. This can be difficult to do, but if you recognize that probabilities are tricky, and recognize the limitations most of us have in evaluating them, you'll be less likely to be conned. For the ACR, I'm Adam Clark, and this has been The Daily Ruckus for Friday, May 14, 2021. For more information, please visit alternatecurrentradio.com.